Welcome to Subtext and Discourse. I'm your host, Michael Dooney, owner and director of Berlin-based contemporary art gallery, Jarvis Dooney. This week, we have a two-part episode. After speaking with John R. Neeson, who participated in our postcard salon, I spoke with his partner, Elizabeth Gowan. John and Elizabeth were doing a residency in Berlin at the Institute for Alles Mögliche. Prior to that, they were in Italy and Greece, and after Berlin, they headed to New York. During our conversation, Elizabeth talks about how artist residencies have had such an impact on her practice and way of working, in particular, how an artist responds to their immediate surroundings. Graduating art school in the 70s, Elizabeth was one of the generation of artists and women who were involved with and influenced by the feminist movement. The freedom of expression that it afforded women and how the artistic landscape would be changed from that point on. We also spoke about the act of collecting, recording, documentation, and how this way of interacting with the world plays such an important role in the output of many artists like her. So without further delay, here is part one of my conversation with Elizabeth Gowan. Sort of fraught with difficulty, so we've never yeah. really worked together. We've had exhibitions in the same space, mm-hmm. but not really worked on anything. Yeah, no, I was thinking because it's quite interesting you've both got very established independent practices but there's never really been an overlap because I think even with the work that you make it's aesthetically and I guess conceptually quite different to what John's yes. doing. I mean the only thing I've noticed in recent years what that overlap because it's even more distinct because when John was doing paintings mm-hmm. and I was doing big sort of free hanging them was very different and in a sense his were figurative and mine were abstract. The only thing that overlaps is that sense of sourcing the location, I think, mm-hmm. is um, because all the materials I use have always come from, you know, just found materials. So that's probably the kind of overlap in a way that we both source the local wherever we are. And yeah. I think in terms of residencies, that sort of definitely influenced my work. I remember we had a, a residency in 2000 in Barcelona mm-hmm. and I hadn't actually thought about Barcelona, but Australia had a studio there and it seemed like easier to get than the London one. Also, we had two kids and you could, it was one of the few ones you could take kids to because it was a big sort of apartment. Most of them were like this, you know, not really very big. And that really did change uh, because I I realised that I was sourcing not just the material but the actual tiling, the... um, structures, patterns, things that I was seeing. So it was like I was sourcing all the structure and Mm. the material from the environment. And that really changed. uh, There was like a turning point in terms of doing more structured um, geometries. But even when I was doing paintings in the 80s, um, which were figures, uh, sort of evolved from collages and then I used to cut them up so you wouldn't see any imagery or text. It would sort of be fragmented, disjointed, sort of city series, you know, bombardment stuff. But then I started to allow the imagery to come through and then eventually I would trace the imagery from junk mail and then it became consumer imagery and then I would then draw that up and paint it. Um, But all the imagery was found from junk mail. I, yeah, I guess I saw them as kind of a, a patchwork or a collage. Kind of. Well, they, 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 the early, the 80s works, the linear sort of things, mm-hmm. yeah, um, they were paintings. And um, 
But then I, they became colliders because yeah. I was using, like I'd cut out cars and irons and couches and started to get into that whole consumer overload. But I'd save them as a, as a source material that I would then draw. Yeah. So if I was looking to draw a car, I would go through my box of cars yeah. and find one thing. Oh, yeah, that one. And then I started to really like the, the shape and the cutout and all that sort of thing. And so, so all the imagery and all the geometry or patterns, if you call them, um, were found as well as the material. Because how did you start with the patterns? I think I started off back in the 70s. I actually was interested. I'd left art school where I'd had, you know, painting education, Mm -hmm. you know, still life, figuring the landscape, Um, and then eventually by third year you could paint your own thing, and I was painting figurative imagery. And when I left art school, I mean, I think it was also the times as well. A lot of artists were using alternative materials. The feminist movement was just beginning and you'd see things, you know, Eva Hess using latex or, um, uh, you know, artists using um, metals and resin. And uh, so people moving away from the canvas. So it was partly that. And also a sense of, I guess, having freedom of leaving art school and finding I had done a few paper collages that was sort of frowned upon because it was very much a painting course. But I used to stick things and then paint over them. And so there was almost like a natural inclination to collect um, imagery and papers. And, and so I started in this new studio once I left to, I got a ream of a newsprint paper that you wrap up fish and chips with. And uh, so I nicked that from the fish and chip shop out the front. And, um, and so I had this ream of like newsprint paper and I just would go page after page painting and then it would, it would all buckle and so then I'd start to get such a bland surface so I started to tear it up and stick it together again to get a bit of texture and I started weaving it together and then I started rubbing oil on it because it would make it transparent and mm-hmm. then resin and then before I knew it I was cutting it up and reassembling it and led into you know making installations and collages so the, the mark making that I'd put on the paper were often just gestures, yeah. you know, a scribble, a cross, just very basic gestures. And then they evolved into the scribble became a zigzag, the cross shape became repeated and then that. And so they weren't very patterny, so to speak, but they were, it was a way of getting the colour and the gesture and the transparency onto the paper by using very basic mark making. And so they were paintings in a way that I then cut up, a bit like how Matisse painted the papers Mm -hmm. that he then cut up. So I sort of, I guess, started doing that. And then eventually the paper took over. You know, I then started to overlap it and paint resin on it, which would, uh, and tissue paper and um, laminating and then plastics and nylons. And then I'd overlap them and do all these sort of works. And then the mark making, I guess, started to look like torn posters in a way. And I then moved into the city uh, studio. And, I mean, we're talking the 80s. It isn't anywhere like 2019. But at the time, it seemed like it was very exciting and hectic. And living in the city, it seemed like it was very sort of, wow. 
in, in like I said, in retrospect, it's very <laughs> quiet, but, you know, no internet, no thing. But anyway, so I started to use found papers yeah. and add them into my painted papers. And they were posters and um, packaging and billboards and hoardings and in Australia they have the you know newspaper headlines mm-hmm. in this kind of like little rack you know outside the news agent yeah. so I'd get them and magazine ads and so I started to actually just bring them in and then eventually that took over and I stopped painting oh so, okay so before you were painting what you had created yeah and then eventually you just the creation itself was the finished piece yes yes and then the paper became the work and so instead mm-hmm. of painting on the paper the paper was the work yeah so the texture within the paper the cutouts the you know I'd cut holes in them and then stick other things in them. so then that became the work so they were quite um constructed and and that and so eventually the the posters that I was using you know to find red and blue and I cut the text up and mm-hmm. eventually that became the work too and then that led on to using the figures in the junk mail. Yeah, because I noticed with, I think, looking at your back catalogue and then seeing the evolution, it was, as you say, it was more abstract. And then I suppose looking at them as a whole piece, it is still, it is more of a pattern and an abstract, like, I guess, like, yeah, not like a wallpaper or a blanket, but it is more of a a whole piece. But then looking closer at it, you can see it isn't just the colours, the actual imagery within them. Is all within context, so you've picked all of the same motifs and all of the yeah. same subject matter to create them. Yeah, so it's like another, I guess, another layer there. I think obviously the the repetition is the repetition of the mark making, mm-hmm. the, the the scribble, and then repeating it, repeating it, and then that created a rhythm. It creates a field of sort of energy. Uh, when I was doing silhouettes of objects, linearly, it, it yeah, it was definitely about the field. And, and it sort of skims across the surface, but then within there there's like a, another pattern. The paintings we're talking about, called, I call them uh, found image paintings, and the titles were often, you know, can't remember where I put it, you know, mm-hmm. visual overload, lost and found, you know, that sort of thing. And, they'd, for example, like the black line, if you just looked at the black line, that created a certain pattern. But then every now and then you'd focus on the red line and so the red is running counter to the black and then that would create another thing. So it was still about that sort of field of a kind of patterning mm-hmm. um, but not really in the sense of the way that works are now. They're much more symmetrical and much more tighter. But definitely all the work is about that overall repeated marks, repeated lines or repeated shapes. And you could look into that, you know, what sort of psychological problem yeah. that is. But, <laughs> but I think you often find your own area. You know, it's like Hannah Hock's collages are, you know, figurative mm-hmm. and frags, fragments of heads and feet and arms. And Kurt Schwitter's is, you know, more cubist sort of constructions, I think. And you kind of find this way of using elements in your own way, yeah. Um, in a sense, we're all um, I'm sourcing the same material as Hannah Hock and Kurt Schwitters. I'm just doing it slightly differently to what they how they did it. 
Uh, one thing about the recent work in terms of that, the repetition and the multiple, I think is to do with surplus and yeah. mass production. I mean, Hannah Hock doesn't do thousands of repeated images because she was using Life magazines and she only had one or two and you'd yeah. cut them up and they were very unique. Same with Kurt Schwitters, he'd have one train ticket mm-hmm. and a bit of cardboard. They were, they were pieces of very unique found bits of paper and he juxtaposed, you know, the piece of cardboard with the ticket and, well, I can get 100 tickets yeah. and I can get 100 teabag tags and that mass production of, of bombardment of, you know, buy now, buy now, buy now. And so I think the sorts of collages I do are about living in this time where I can access multiple images of the same thing or slightly different um, so it's a sort of a different way of using collage. And so I guess looking at the ones behind you, you would get, as you said, how many tea, um, tea bag um, tickets or anything like that. Yes. But then you would make the whole surface, so you would create like a large canvas, for want of a better word, with each of the individual pieces. So it's about, I guess, about abundance and mass consumption. And about how things are... And how you you fathom your way through it. I mean, a lot of it is about finding this kind of order within Mm. this sort of busyness. And the works are often quite still, um, even though these are a little bit more stiller. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're chaotic or anything. No, it's about that kind of like... Because, you know, if you look at junk mail and advertising, everywhere you look, it's like boom, boom, boom. You can never really escape. And so I guess what I'm doing is just rearranging it and ordering it and sort of like pushing it back a bit. Yeah. Um, ones before this, I did do a series called Savings and that was very specifically about saving, like saving the paper because a lot of it's from domestic use, yeah. like packaging that comes into the thing, plastic containers, the tea bag tags are all the cups of tea that mm-hmm. I drink. Um <laughs> And then you got you double that with the junk mail. So it's collected from daily life but also from just the world outside. Yeah. I mean, we're inundated with leaflets and junk mail. I know. You can't escape it, yeah. Um, so the saving series came, I did, we moved into a big studio, having worked in, you know, fairly confined studios and then did a big move into a bigger studio. And so I started to... Um, you know, the whole studio gets disrupted and so I started to find all these papers that I'd been saving for years that never got around to using. So it was about saving, as in me saving the stuff to use later, sometimes 20 years. You know, I've got papers from years ago that I'll probably never use but I still think I will. And also um, I started to use the savings tags, you know, buy one, get one free, you know, 10% off, you know, two for a dollar, and so the works became about saving, which you can't. You know, you have to buy more to save, which you're not really saving, and, and then the junk mail is thrown away. So there's that sort of like trying to recycle it, you know, I'm saving it so it wasn't going to landfill, but it'll end up in landfill anyway. Yeah, and yeah. and saving, saving yourself, you know, we're always trying to sort of philosophically work out how to stay alive longer and save, 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 to buy a house, you know, so it's all these layers of meaning. And so the works were much more cluttered mm-hmm. and denser. So the negative and positive space were really full because they were on um, boards. And I like a quilt, the reference to quilt making. 
which was about saving. You know, you save all the old shirts and the baby clothes and you don't throw anything away and then you cut it into little pieces and sew it all together and make something functional. So it comes out of that notion too of making something functional as in art, which is a joke because it's it's sort of functional but not, not in a physical way. It's not going to keep you warm, but it might keep you mentally stimulated. So I was making something functional, i.e. artwork, out of this stuff that would normally just get trashed and thrown away. You know, now with all the recycling thing and it, it can fit into that category too where I'm I'm just using what is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... Obviously, I'm selecting what I use because yeah. I, I I'm not saving. I mean, I do use all the plastic containers as my container. I use all that to mix the paint. You know, like I don't go and buy the stuff because there's enough. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I've never made artworks out of the plastic. You know, I keep thinking, oh, I must make something out of the plastic bags. You yeah. Know? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I like paper. It's yeah. something about the tactileness, the thinness, the, the, the cut and the imagery, mm. you know, that I can utilise. Yeah. With the, I guess, saving the things and reusing them and, like, when you're talking about how you save, you know, you save your baby clothes to, I guess, use for the, the next child or to use for some mm. other thing, is a lot of your work then, a lot of it's generational or a lot of it's connected to being, I guess, a woman that you need to be more... Um, of all of these different things. I mean, I think definitely the women's movement that sort of started to basically started when I started. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me a sense of freedom. I thought, well, I can just do something from my life. Yeah. It doesn't have to be outside my life. And so part of it is that. Um, I think the other part is, you know, I was brought up you know, with a grandmother who crocheted bedspreads and, you know, and a mother who sewed clothes. And so there was this notion that you always make, make things. things. Yeah, my wife's um, the same. Not so quite rare now, yeah. you know, because you, you don't have that uh, tendency to have to make do and make things. And my mother, you know, come from the Depression years and the war years and, and my grandmother before that. And so there was this sense that you don't throw anything away. Mm-hmm. Like you keep all the jars. You keep everything because you don't know when you might need them. Yeah. But I don't do that. I, I guess because I don't have the space and I've moved too many times. But what I can save is the the image of the jar, mm-hmm. the image of the couch, the image of the shoes, you know, because I'm, I'm it's the way it's almost like a pragmatic saving because I can stack my whole studio in a couple of boxes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did collect things, you know, objects. You know, I have lots of collections of coat hangers, each one a different design, but about 600 of them because but they take up to a lot of space. You know? <laughs> and I like that notion, again, it's that manufacturing surplus, you know, I mean, how, how long can they keep redesigning the coat hanger? But yeah. they do, yeah. and I've got one of each. And they make <laughs> quite an interesting installation because I, they're uniform because they've all got this hook and they're predominantly horizontal. Mm-hmm. But each one's horizontal with the thing and this one's got this and this one's... And I really love that same but different. You mm-hmm. know, it's the same thing and yet it's like 
people, cars, you know, it's the same thing, but we just keep reinventing it. Yeah, no, that's true. And a lot of the work is about that too. Like every little tag um, is very similar, but the price is different, you know, and all the image is slightly different or there's something a little bit, and that disrupts the symmetry. That That's a bit of a noise mm-hmm. within the perfectness. So, um, you know, it's symmetrical, but there's this other layer in there. And that comes from that sense of um, it's like manufact- the things are manufactured, but they're uh, also unique. You know, these two stools here, you know, they're manufactured, but that mm. one's different to that. And, that was, and, the, and if you collected stools, you'd have 5,000 of them by now mm. because there's so many different ones. I mean, one of the key things was... Um, Moving into a house after the city studio, we lived there legally, you know, at a time when you people were just moving into those kind of spaces. And then we went from there to Hobart, which is like a big country town, although it's called a city. We had jobs down there and we actually moved into a house. And so I hadn't actually lived in a house for about 15 years because I'd always lived in the urban. And so junk mail just started coming into the letterbox. Yeah. I mean, they, I didn't used to get junk mail because they didn't think anyone lived there because it was a warehouse, mm-hmm. whereas all of a sudden I sort of saw junk mail that I hadn't seen for a while, and so I became really attracted to it. And so that, in a sense, again, was about the location in a way, like mm-hmm. going into another location somehow brought something else into the work. Um, and in that case, which was strange because Hobart being so quiet, and I had a view out the window of the Derwent River with this mountain. I used to sit there, even though I'd look up and a boat would go past, and then I'm cutting out all this, like, junk mail and getting really into <laughs> <laughs> So it was a contract. But that was sort of like a, dom- a domestic mm-hmm. because um, we had kids, and so in a way it was related to what was happening and so setting up house, you know, buying buying couches and, mm-hmm. you know, high chairs and baby clothes. It was like this inundated stuff that you buy blows into your house like a hurricane and then it blows out again because I don't know what happened to all those baby clothes and everything. It just blows in, blows out. And you dump stuff as you go and you get new stuff. And so the junk mail represented this choice, choice Mm -hmm. but no choice, and um, excess and overload, consumption, all that sort of thing. Yeah. I guess going then from the urban warehouse to living in a house in Hobart, how long were you in Hobart for? Two years. Oh, only two years. Yeah, it couldn't last much longer. (laughs) (laughs) So then we came back to Melbourne, but we came back to Melbourne and also lived in a house. Okay, so it's still residential. Yeah, so we, um, in a city but still Mm -hmm. residential, and so that kind of the found image thing kind of continued for quite a while. Yeah. Oh, we went to London in... in. Yeah, when did you start doing the residencies? Because I feel like um, both yourself and John have been back and forth between... Well, early on, before I met John, yeah. um, I was with another artist and I won a $400 prize, which was a lot, <laughs> and he, he applied for a, a studio in New York because New York was the place. 
So the residency enabled us to get there. The 400 bucks plus the residency, you could do it. I, you'd find the airfare and work and get the airfare and then you'd sort of, you know, go. And so they were very pivotal things, you know, that, that sense of being somewhere else. When we were in New York, I had to do some work um, for a group show of Australian artists in some gallery. The gallery I was showing at said, oh, have you got to work? And I said, no. And so I, I thought, oh, I could make it in New York and just leave it there yeah. at the gallery in their storeroom for like six months before the show. And so what was really interesting, because I made work while I was there, so I wasn't just a tourist, mm-hmm. I had to quickly make this work. And so I had to source the material and go to Canal Street and try and make a frame and try to find the material. And so it became very real that you could actually live in New York mm-hmm. because it seemed normal. Um, and I'm just making the stuff on the floor, you know, because it was a pretty raw studio. And I guess that addiction to being somewhere else but also being able to function somewhere yeah. else, you just set up a studio. It probably if I hadn't had that, I probably would have just been a bit more of a tourist. I mean, I did the whole tourist bit and go around to every gallery yeah, and et cetera, but that moment of actually having to make work, it became possible that I could work anywhere. We had a studio in at the Cité International Des Arts, and we'd actually both got it. I mean, these were in the days when you could be a young artist and you could get this stuff. <laughs> um, but we sort of combined it and we were there. And, you know, we'd get there and it's a, quite a, a different space. But you'd, you'd immediately set up a studio. You know, we, we, we took the door off and made that the tabletop, you know. And in a way, did John tell you how we made the bed? Quite here? Yeah. No. Well, they had just two mattresses here and it's like, oh, and he meant to just put the mattress on the floor and it seems like, oh, well, that's going to get all dirty and everything. And also you'd have to clear the space every day and... So they hadn't really accounted for two people. No. And so that's the tabletop. And then there happened to be this, literally the day we arrived, we're walking along the street and there's a hard rubbish collection and there were these box frames. Mm-hmm. We thought, oh, could use them, thinking as a bedside table or something. Yeah. And then this big long one, we thought, oh, and if you put these two short ones and this big long one and put that tabletop on there, You've got a divan. <laughs> <laughs> so that sense of like working on this little table, like it's really annoying but and it's small because we use the desktop for the bed. Yeah. So I don't have and I can't work in the same room as John. Mm-hmm. Like we can't be in the same room because I don't think I've ever worked in the same room with him. We've always had separate spaces because you need your head space, yeah. you know. I thought, oh, because I could have, we talked about it, I'll just set up in the corner and he can be in the other corner, but sort of like, yeah, don't think that would work. So I just said, oh, look, I'll just sort of, I'd rather be in here and just have my own little space so I can leave it there. I don't have to pack it up every day. And and so partly the residency is about that. It's about you can work anywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, I think even when you were saying before about the, Depression era from your grandmother. The making do. And being resourceful. Yes, yes. I think rather thinking, oh, now I need to go and buy this or I need to get this. Yes. Thinking, oh, this will, this will do, this will work. Yes. We found a solution, now we can keep going. Yes. And then, I mean, I didn't bring any papers with me. 
um, I think I might have bought two from Australia just in case I never found anything. But I thought, oh, I'll just see what I find. And that's what I've found so far. I haven't had time to use it and so I'll take it back. And So it is a little bit like that. It's kind of I don't know what I'll find, um, only looking at the paper. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not using fabric. You know, I could be looking and finding fabric or I could be looking and finding bits of wood, but I, I've got my kind of material. And it changes. Like when I had a residency in Paris, I was using stuff like packaging for a long time. But on a residency, you can't drink that many cups of tea and you can't buy that many cans of peas because you don't want to get the packaging, yeah. and uh, which is what I used to do because I really wanted, you know, the, the tomato mm-hmm. package because big collages. When I was with Paris, in with John, and there wasn't anything and I think they don't have, like, there's no papers on the street, there's no brochures, there's nothing. What am I going to do? And there was like this recycled bin. And so you'd go there and you'd look at it and it was all French glossy magazines. Oh, perfect. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> obviously all the other artists who were wealthier or something, they'd throw these glossy magazines. And so then I started to notice, in fact, there were people would put these glossy vote, you know, mm-hmm. in their recycling thing. So that's what I used which is slightly different because it's different paper. Yeah, it's a different, different. There's no sign. There's no little, it's just more colour, you know, it's like flat colour with a bit of text in it. And so those works were quite French because mm-hmm. I cut them up into, um, I started to collect photographs of all the different wrought iron balconies because I like the idea of they're all different but they're mm-hmm. similar but different. So you, a lot of the... Collections come through photographs as well, source material. And so I cut all these little black, um, like little wrought iron things out of the magazines. But then I also did these works based on um, wallpaper. You know, you go to the museums, Versailles and all those museums, and I love all that flock wallpaper. Yeah, that's what I thought when I saw them. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Kind of so they really were made really. in Paris with the glossy magazines. I couldn't do the other work there. Mm-hmm. It just didn't fit. Yeah. And it's very literal. Oh, these are my French series. But um, still, I think it's, but it's, it's a response to a space as well. And I think yes. wherever we travel, we have certain preconceptions about what that space is going to be like, yes. what we expect it to be, and even what we project onto it. Although some people would look at it and go, oh, this is a, you know, this is the kind of the stereotype, but it's yes. also what we want to see or what we're expecting to yes. see that kind of fills our imagination. Well, the studio was at the Cité International, yeah. you know, like 30 years later, and um, and you are surrounded by the Marais. I mean, you can't help but notice all those wrought iron. And, yeah. and from, from Australia, like, you just love it, you know, yeah. just think, oh, my God, it's maybe. And there's hardly any advertising there's a few torn posters on the cylinders, but the rest is so refined and so you just start to feed off that. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to do in-your-face clutter when you're living in the Marais. Like, you sort of can't. Yeah. Well, um, even how you said before, with both of the work that you do, there is very much a response to your immediate surroundings. Mm-hmm. If that's what you're being exposed to every day, then that's what you're going to yeah. react from. 
I mean, a lot of the residencies are quite short-lived, you know, a month. You can't really do a lot. But what happens is you do a lot when you get back because you're still feeding off it even when you're technically not there. The Barcelona studio was very pivotal because it had all... um, All the floors were tiled in encaustic patterns, tiling, and you think, wow, this is like fabulous. And you'd sit there and just look at how they worked out the um, repetition. And it sounds odd, but it was the first time I understood the grid Yeah. in 2000. I thought, oh, that's how they do it. Oh, yeah, I get it. And so I did tracings of all the um, tiles, and each room had a different pattern, and then completely then understood, oh, that's what I need to do, draw up a grid first. Like <laughs> <laughs> You think, oh, yeah, that's right. So you've been doing it the whole time without a grid or anything, you've just been... Oh, yeah, kind of like I might have a few little points. I think, oh, like a horizontal and a vertical line or something like that and then sort of like ad libit. No, but actually understanding how the grid... I mean, I know about grids, but Mm -hmm. I hadn't actually got what I could do with it. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, there's a lot of Moorish... influence in Barcelona too even though it's very far north but and so then I also understood the triangle um, which a lot of uh, um, Islamic patterns are based mm-hmm. not on a grid but the triangle and so then that's like oh right that's how they do it yeah it was almost like the sort of thing oh I know how they do it now it's not that complicated it's quite simple particularly the Islamic ones mm-hmm. once you kind of because I would trying to work out where's the grid that doesn't make sense. And then eventually I go, wait on, oh, I get it. It seems so obvious because most of the stuff I do, I think it's almost like I'm discovering something. Mm, yeah. Or as you're I'm using going. The, this, um, I guess the source material is dictating the pattern that you're going to create. Yes. I hope you enjoyed listening to and hearing more about Elizabeth's work. Part two will be up in a few days. In the meantime, you're welcome to leave any comments, questions or feedback to this episode and others below. I invite you to follow us on social media and if you're feeling generous, please support the podcast on Patreon. My name's Michael Dooney and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.